Well, you guys can open your Bibles to Titus chapter 1 again. We're going to actually finish Titus chapter 1 this morning, finish the first chapter. Last week we started into these, these verses 10 through 16 in this first chapter that talk about how to deal with and identify false teachers. I can imagine, though, some of you thinking to yourself, is this really such a big deal? I mean, why spend so much time talking about this? I mean, when is the last time you really encountered a false teacher? Ever? But false teachers and false teaching are much more prevalent than you think. And today there's so many subtle attacks on the truth, you probably don't even realize it. In 2007, William P. Young published a book titled The Shack. It soon sold one million copies, found itself on the New York Times bestseller list from 2008 all the way through 2010. Now has reached over 15 million copies sold. That's a lot. One Christian author endorsed the shack, saying that it has, quote, the potential to do for our generation what John Bunyan's Pilgrim, Pilgrim's Progress did for his, end quote. Although it's written in a Christian fiction format, the book aims to pre- provide a message of hope as well as answers to all of life's biggest questions. Who is God? Who is Jesus? What is the Trinity? What is salvation? Is Jesus the only way to heaven? If God, then why evil? And what happens after I die? Young spins a fictional tale where the central character, Mac, encounters God in a shack where his daughter was murdered. And the shack is a metaphor for the houses of pain you build in your life. In the shack, Mac encounters manifestations of the three persons of the Trinity. God the Father takes the form of an African-American woman who calls herself Eloisa. Jesus is a Middle Eastern carpenter, of course, named Papa. And the Holy Spirit is an Asian woman named Sarayu. Young acknowledges that this is, of course, fiction. However, through this fiction, he is answering all of life's biggest practical and theological questions. Through Mac's interaction with God, Young, the author, he's teaching us what he believes about God. He's telling us who God is. The problem, though, is that he gets God wrong. He's not concerned with helping people understand God's revealed truth, but rather aims to define truth based on his own personal feelings and experiences. And the result is actually a false and even heretical teaching on Christianity, Scripture, the Trinity, sin, God, the Incarnation, the way of salvation, the Church, and more. And because it presents itself as a true teaching about the true God, the shack is a deceptive and underhanded assault on God's revealed truth. Being woven into an emotional storyline, though, its half-truths about God have a mass appeal. And so now countless millions have have read and been influenced by its false teaching. But really, the, the shack's influence is nothing compared to that of the Da Vinci Code. You guys know this. I'm sure you made, you made the news all those years ago. You know what I'm talking about. Dan Brown's ultra-popular book. I mean, talk about influence. The Da Vinci Code sold 80 million-plus copies in over 44 languages. Now, that's a lot. It's the best-selling English-language novel of the 21st century and the second-best-selling 
of any language. Pretty amazing numbers. It's, it's a fictional tale of murder, mystery, intrigue. And while its characters and its plot are fictional, the surroundings of the story are presented as true. In other words, the novel is presented as having a historically accurate background and setting. The problem with this is that the Da Vinci Code presents an alternative history of Christianity. Brown claims, quote, Almost everything our fathers taught us about Christ is false, end quote. That's good to know. I'm glad God gave the church Dan Brown some 2,000 years later to just to clear things up for us. He goes on to claim that modern Christianity was invented at the Council of Nicaea in AD 325, where a group of bishops got together. They were bankrolled by the newly converted Emperor Constantine, and they got together and they decided to make Jesus God to consolidate their power. So they declared Jesus to be God. Furthermore, they covered up the fact that Jesus was, in fact, married to Mary Magdalene because that fact didn't make Jesus seem quite as divine. So they covered that up, and to finish things off, they created the Bible. They chose the four Gospels that we have out of some potential 80 Gospels that existed at the time, because these four most presented Jesus as divine. Referring to this council, Brown claims that, quote, until that moment in history, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet. A great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless. End quote. Now, I think most of us know better than this than to get history from a fictional novel. But what do you do when an author claims that the historical setting of his work, everything I just said, is true? And it's based on deep research, it's accurate. Those who have little knowledge of church history, which is probably 99% of the population, They just take it. They take it as fact. 80 million people bought this book. Countless millions more have read it. And so if just 1% or 2% of people actually take it in, that's still millions of people being led astray. In reality, that number is much higher. A survey by George Barnett showed that some 50% of people found this book to be spiritually beneficial to them. That means there's a lot of people being influenced by its claims. There's just a few examples of how false teaching creeps its way into our lives. It's much more prevalent than you think. I mean, we're talking about the number one best-selling book of the 21st century. That's a big deal. And it's, it's a form of a false teaching. What you have to understand is that false teaching is real. And spiritual warfare is real. As much as our society relegates this to the sci-fi and fantasy realm, we have a spiritual enemy with Satan as its general, and their goal is to mislead the church. It's real. It's not not just a a sci-fi story. False teaching is still a massive snare for Christians, even today. And so we need still instruction for identifying false teachers and then for dealing with them. We need that. That's why we turn to Titus chapter 1. If you haven't already, turn there. And hopefully with a renewed sense of urgency in learning this, we can read this passage and and really see what does God say? What does God have to say to you about false teachers? 
Let's go ahead and read Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely, so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Last week we started into this passage and we aim to discover three critical truths about false teachers so that you might know how to rightly respond to them. That's that's where we're going with this. Three critical truths about false teachers so that you might know how to rightly respond to them. And last week we covered the first of these three truths, which was the character of false teachers. Number one, the character of false teachers. In verses 10 through 16 here, Paul paints the portrait of false teachers, showing them to be rebellious, empty talkers, deceivers, legalists, greedy, liars, evil, lazy, defiled, and unbelieving. Ten characteristics in total, and we looked at each of those last week. It's really step one. Coming to know the character of false teachers is really step one. You first have to be able to identify them before you can rightly respond to them. And like we observed last week, nothing can be more hazardous to a sheep's health than to not know what a wolf looks like. So you have to first be able to identify who we're talking about here. So that's why, number one, the character of false teachers. Now we're going to continue And then covering these three critical truths, picking up with number two, the counter for false teachers. Number two now, the counter for false teachers. In other words, this is how you should counter or respond to false teachers. And we have two in particular, two counters in particular. The first is this, they must be silenced, verse 11. They must be silenced. Starting at verse 10 again. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. <clears throat> so the first response here, the first counter for false teaching is to silence them. Verse 11 says they must be silenced. Not an option to let their influence continue in the church. They must be silenced. To silence here means to muzzle or to gag, to close the mouth, literally. If if you've ever seen, if you've ever had a new dog, you know that sometimes, usually in the middle of the night, they just start barking for for no known reason. And they don't stop. They just keep barking. So some people buy a muzzle. They strap the muzzle around the dog's mouth to keep it from other things from barking. In the same way, false teachers need to be muzzled. They need to be prevented from spreading their deceit in the church. Or in a similar way, in the court system today, 
Judges can, they have this thing called a gag order. They can enforce a gag order upon people in the trial to keep them from speaking in public things that could harm the trial. In the same way, the church needs to enforce a gag order on false teachers to prevent them from doing harm with their words. It's a matter of protecting the flock. I remember one time when I was in college, my church had this little weekend seminar on creationism and evolutionism. And the pastor was teaching. He did this open mic session during Saturday morning, one of the sessions. And this guy came in off the street. We didn't know him, never saw him before. He grabbed the mic and just went off on a rant. He started yelling. He was agitated and angry, and he wouldn't stop. And so I remember our pastor going into, like, sheep defense mode. And so he turns the guy's microphone off, and then he proceeded to silence the man. He told him either to sit quietly and listen or leave. I distinctly remember my pastor telling him, he said, hey, listen, if you want to preach, get your own church. Well, it's not going to happen here. The guy sat down, actually, and he did remain quiet. We actually got to share the gospel with him at, at the lunchtime session. But the pastor did the right thing by silencing him. Now, I know. Some people are always going to hear this and respond, this is intolerant. And guess what? You're right. This is intolerant. But God is not concerned with tolerating deceit. Some might say, you know, this goes against free speech. Guess what? You're right. But God is not concerned with giving false teachers the freedom of misleading speech in the church. You know, of course, we live in America. They're free to say whatever they want in their home or even in the public arena. But they're not free to say whatever they want in the church. The gospel cannot be held hostage to some sort of free speech mentality. Lastly, some may find this to be unloving. But that's where you would be wrong. To reuse an illustration from last week, what would you think of a person who mixed rat poison into a baby's milk bottle? and then gave it to an infant. Pretty much the worst thing you could imagine. Right? It's got to be the worst person on earth, right? Okay, right. Well, that's what God thinks of false teachers who likewise poison his children. That's what he thinks of them. So is it unloving to stop such a person from giving the infant the bottle? Of course not. In fact, it's the most loving thing you can do because in doing so, you are protecting the child. This is the position the church is in. This is why they must silence false teachers. Keep in mind, this is not arbitrary. Pastors and elders, their job is not to go around like the thought police and just censor people who think differently or teach even a little bit differently than they do. It's not the point here. Even mature believers at times can believe things that are wrong and and the pastors and the elders, they need to patiently work with people and trust God to grow them according to his timeline. But when someone is teaching falsehood and people are being led astray, then they must be silenced. Look at the next phrase in verse 11. Why must they be silenced? It says, because they are upsetting whole families. Now, understand what it means to be upset here. It doesn't mean to get angry. To be upset here doesn't mean to make someone angry like you get upset because your toast gets burnt or something like that. Rather, to be upset here means to overthrow, 
or overturn or to ruin something. It's kind of like in the American Revolution. We overthrew or overturned British rule. The picture then, it's not that these false teachers are making people angry. It's that they're overthrowing or upsetting their faith. In addition, they're doing this to whole families. And most likely this is a reference to the house churches that early Christians met in. You know, Romans 16.5, for instance, Paul says, greet Prisca and Aquila and the church that is in their house. So they didn't have church buildings back then when the church was just beginning. So where did the church meet? Well, whoever had the biggest house and was willing to open their house. And so it's likely that these false teachers were infiltrating these house churches with their teaching and leading people astray. And surely they would go after the weak and the young and the immature believers. You guys, I'm sure you've all seen these, like the National Geographic or the Discovery Channel videos of the pack of lions hunting the herd of water buffalo or or something like that. You've seen it, so you know the answer to this question. Who does the lion target? The the strongest, the the most powerful, or the weak and the young? Of course, you you know, the weak or the young. False teachers are the exact same way. Therefore, they're not to be trusted. They're not to be tolerated. The church must silence their attacks. And just to reiterate the fact, this is not arbitrary. Look again at the remainder of verse 11. Look how verse 11 ends. How are these false teachers ruining the faith of these believers? He says it must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families. What are they doing? Teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. That's what they're doing. They're they're teaching things they should not teach. What are these things? Well, all signs point to legalism. This group of people, they were teaching that works had to be added to faith, to please God, to be saved. You have to remember how Paul described this group of people back in verse 10. Do you remember? He said they were rebellious, they're empty talkers, they're deceivers, and most of them belong to the party of the circumcision. The party of the circumcision. Now, I know that's kind of a weird name for a group, the circumcision. We have our group names today, you know, evangelical, liberal, etc. We've got group names. Back then, there was a group of people. They're known as the circumcision, and they're very influential. And here's how they started, in case you don't know. When the church began, all these Jews converted to Christ. In fact, the early church was 100% Jewish at, at the beginning. Now, at first, they didn't fully understand what God was doing in this whole church thing, how God was bringing together Jew and Gentile as one, into one body. They didn't fully understand that. Eventually, though, God filled them in. Peter baptized Cornelius, if you remember, and the floodgates were open for Gentile inclusion into the church. However, some of those early Jews, early Jewish Christians, They were not okay with this. They were not going to stand around and let these filthy Gentiles infiltrate it and become a part of their new movement, the church. They were not happy with this. And so at the very least, they said, if these Gentiles wanted to really become part of the church, in addition to accepting Jesus, they had to get circumcised 
and keep the law of Moses. That's why they were called the circumcision. And that's why they're legalists. That that's the definition of legalism. Adding something to the gospel of faith in Christ alone. They perverted the true gospel by adding works requirements to it. And this is more than enough to make them false teachers who need to be silenced. It gets worse, though, because these false teachers on Crete who were legalists, they didn't even have pure motives. I mean, it's not like they were standing up for what they believed to be the truth. No, what was their motivation on this island of Crete, which is where Titus was ministering? It says in verse 11, they were teaching things they should not teach. Why? For the sake of sordid gain. That's talking about money. Dirty money. They just wanted money. And people in the church were giving them money. The church was giving them money. Why would they do that? Why would the church give these people money? Well, turn, turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5, just a few books to the left. What you have to remember is that Paul several times clearly instructed the church to support financially those gifted in teaching and preaching. And the false teachers were taking advantage of this generosity. Look at 1 Timothy 5, verse 17. It says, The elders who rule, rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. That's a reference to, to payment. Especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So here, other verses like this in the New Testament, we see over and over this instruction that the church is to support those who are gifted by God in, in teaching and preaching. And Paul himself, he eventually quit his tent-making job, and the church has supported him so that he could devote himself to full-time ministry. We know this, but like I said, these false teachers were taking advantage of this. You can picture them infiltrating these small house churches and gaining their trust and eventually becoming their, their teachers, all the while only being motivated by one thing, the paycheck that came every week. They were just taking the, the money from these churches. still happens. Stuff like this still happens. Back when we were in L.A., there's this company nearby our church, and they hire a lot of Christian employees. A lot of them came from our church. They hired this one lady from a different church, and I think they hired her to be like a receptionist or, or something like that. And the thing is, pretty soon after working there, she got cancer. So she started, you know, chemotherapy. Her hair started falling out, and she got pale, stuff like that. You know, you know how it goes. And so, but she, the thing is, she didn't have much money, very little money at all. So she started a little collection, a little donation or a collection just to help for pay for her treatments. And of course, as you can imagine, her, her brothers and sisters in the faith at her workplace and at her church, they pitched in, they raised, I think, tens of thousands of dollars for her. Just one problem. She didn't have cancer. Well, I, actually, there's more than one problem here. She also wasn't a Christian. And she ran away with the money. You see, she was a deceiver. And this was all part of her plan from the beginning. She faked being a Christian. She faked having cancer. 
They later found in the investigation she never really went to the doctor, and she was shaving her own head to imitate like a chemotherapy treatment. All to fool people. And once she had earned enough sympathy and enough money, she fled, left the state, took the money. Now, she wasn't really a false teacher, per se. It's not like she was leading a Bible study or teaching people. But look, it's a true story. It just goes to show you there's plenty of deceivers out there. Most of the time, they just want money. And here's the thing. They know they can get that money in the church. They know it's, it's easy money, usually, in the church. So beware. Always beware the person, especially the teacher who's looking for money. Elders must rise to the occasion, protect the flock. And so that's why first here, the first counter to these false teachers is to silence them. They must be silenced. Let's move on to our second counter for false teachers. For verse 13, they must be severely reproved. They must be severely reproved. Verse 13. It says, For this reason reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. So first off, notice how false teachers are not to be dealt with here. It doesn't say debate with them. It doesn't say argue with them. It doesn't say discuss with them. It doesn't say tolerate them. It doesn't say leave them be. It says what? Reprove them. To approve means to correct someone, to prove them, to prove to them their error. It's where you show someone that they're they're in the wrong. And you have to remember, this is the explicit duty of the elder. What did we learn just a few verses before in verse 9? What's the job of the elder? Verse 9 in Titus 1, he says, An elder must be holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that, he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and what? Refute, that's the same word in the Greek here as reprove, refute those who contradict. Exact same word. Refute those who contradict. When false teachers rise up in the church, they must be reproved, and this duty falls to the elders. But not only do they need to be reproved, they need to be severely reproved, it says. The word severely is used of cutting something with a knife or an axe. The false teaching must be proven wrong first and then cut off. It's not enough to simply detect cancer. It's not going to do it. It must be severely cut off and removed from you, lest it return and spread. Same thing goes for false teaching. Keep this in mind. When false teaching arises, elders are to cut it down, not with their own words, not with their own wisdom, not with their own opinion, but with God's word. God's word is the scalpel that will remove this cancer from the body. And the counter to error is always the truth. False teachers must be silenced and reproved by being shown their error and folly from Scripture. And after all, just remember 2 Timothy 4.2. Elders and pastors are to what? Preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. And do what? Reprove, rebuke, exhort 
with great patience and instruction. That's their job. Same word again, reprove. With great patience and instruction. Don't miss that last part. They're to do all that, it says, with great patience and instruction. That's an important distinction to make. Yes, silence false teachers. And yes, reprove them severely. And yes, toward their teaching, be unrelenting. But toward them as individuals, guess what? God still wants you to be kind, gentle, and patient, even with them. Do you, do you believe that? Turn to First Timothy chapter two, or excuse me, Second Timothy chapter two, even closer. Second Timothy chapter two. You just see this for yourself. Even though you should not be patient with their teaching, remarkably, God still wants you to be patient with them. Look at this, verse 23, 2 Timothy 2.23. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, kind to everyone, able to teach, patient when wrong. Get this, verse 25. With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. They're just right there with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. That's a realization you have to make, that these false teachers, they're still enslaved to sin. And Do you expect them to be holy and righteous? To live like believers? Of course not. But God still wants you to be kind, it says. Patient and gentle with them. Because at the end of the day, it's only God who can change them, not you. God has to act. The whole point here is that your interaction with false teachers needs to be remedial. In other words, your goal is not to condemn them necessarily, but to restore them. That's your hope. You're holding out hope that God, by his grace, will still transform this person, will save them, will bring them to the truth, that they may escape the snare of the devil. That's the hope. That's precisely what Paul goes on to say back in Titus chapter 1, verse 13, our verse. He says, this testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely. Why? So that they may be condemned No, he says, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. There's this holding out hope that even though they are a false teacher and you want to deal harshly with their teaching, you you have hope that God by his grace will still transform them. And he can. It's within his power. The hope is that they would abandon their obsession with Jewish myths, verse 14, and instead turn to God's word. And that they would not heed the commands of men, verse 14, but would instead heed the commands of God. It's just God's grace. Their condemnation need not be certain. And the truth that rebukes them can also redeem them. So this is a counter for false teachers. First, they must be silenced. Second, they must be severely reproved. But all the while, 
This must be done with a spirit of gentleness, holding out hope that God himself would be gracious to grant them repentance and restoration. This is is God's instructions for, for dealing with false teachers, two counters. Well, lastly now, number three. Remember, we've got three critical truths about false teachers. Third on our list, the condition of false teachers. Start off with the character of false teachers. Secondly, the counter for false teachers. And now thirdly, the condition of false teachers from verses 15 and 16. Let's read those. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him. Being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. So the final truth you need to know about false teachers is their condition, their true condition. Look at verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. So what what exactly does this mean? What's he saying here? Well, the law of Moses and these Jewish legalists are in the background. So what he's talking about is ritual purification. Ritual purification. I'll tell you what I mean. The point that Paul is making is the exact same point that Jesus made in Mark 7. So, so turn there. Mark chapter 7. I know today I got you turned to a lot of verses, so bear with me. You know, you're always free to just listen along. But if you want to, turn to Mark chapter 7. We'll see this firsthand. Yeah, Pharisees and scribes, they show up on the scene and they see Christ's disciples eating bread with unwashed hands. They think to themselves, how could, how could they do that? How could they eat bread with impure, unwashed hands? And we're not talking like we wash our hands before a meal. They had this ceremonial washing before pretty much everything. So they questioned Jesus. They were they're outraged. Mark 7, verse 5. Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And he, Jesus, said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written. These people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. So what they're doing is they added all these rules and regulations. I mean, they had the Old Testament, but then they had so many more of their own traditions and rules. And pretty soon, that's all they paid attention to. They really, that, that became their primary teaching, these traditions. They actually thought if they washed properly and they ate clean food, this would make them clean before God. They, they just didn't get it. And Christ goes on to say that, listen, nothing you eat can defile you. No amount of washing can really make you clean before God. These Pharisees, they were so caught up with the exterior, they failed to miss that 
God is concerned with the heart. Just look down at verse 18. Mark 7:18. He said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also that do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from the outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man is that which defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. So this is the exact same point Paul is making back in Titus 1.15. He's saying, look, if you're pure, which means if you've been made pure in Christ, you've been saved and transformed, then everything is pure. He's not talking about sin. Sin is still sin. That's not what he's talking about. But for believers, all food is pure. Nothing can ceremonially defile you anymore. Because nothing from the outside can reach your heart. If your heart has been, has been made pure in Christ, then you're clean. Nothing can change that. But verse 15, for those who are what? Defiled and unbelieving, back in Titus 1, nothing is pure. In other words, if your heart has not been made right with God, nothing is pure to you. The point is, look, you can wash your hands all you want. You can not eat all the pork you want and you'll have the strictest diet. It's not going to make you pure before God. It's not going to change your heart before God either. And that was their problem. An impure, unclean, unsaved heart. This is the pitfall of the Pharisees. And this was the pitfall of the false teachers back in Titus 1. They were still dead in their sins, untransformed on the inside. Look how verse 15 ends. Back to Titus 1, if you haven't already. Verse 15 says, Both their mind and their conscience are defiled. That's, what just, that's just what Jesus said. They're dirty on the inside, so everything they produce on the outside is likewise dirty or defiled. Now, all the good works they thought were pleasing God were in reality just, just filth before God because they were springing from an unclean heart. And that's, that's a failure of legalism. And what really makes these false teachers bad in Titus 1 is that in addition to having a depraved mind, they had a defiled conscience. Do you see that there? Their consciences were also defiled. See, normally when you sin, here's how it works. Your conscience, your God-given conscience, it bugs you. It tells you, hey, you just did something wrong, you need to make it right. And God gave you the conscience, your conscience for that reason. But these false teachers, they ignored their consciences so much that they grew, it's like they formed a callus over them. They could no longer feel anymore. I remember when I was a kid, I played so much sports. I had football, baseball, basketball, just really pretty much everything. I had a callus on, on the, the ball of my foot. And I remember, this is a boy thing to do, so I hope it doesn't gross you out, but I remember, like 10, 12 years old or something, I would take a pin and just kind of like, you know, stick it through the callus. And I thought it was so cool because I couldn't feel anything. It's just dead. You can't feel anything. Well, these guys, they developed a callus over their heart, over their conscience, and they couldn't feel sin anymore. Sin didn't bother them. 
That's a scary place to be. Turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 4. I told you, a lot of 1st 2nd Timothy here. There's a lot of overlap. 1st Timothy chapter 4. Look at verses 1 and 2. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Verse 2. By means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. It's a very similar image. And today, most people have seared their consciences. Just think about it. For most people today, what used to be huge sins don't even bug people. I mean, homosexuality, abortion. Most people, it just doesn't even bug them anymore. Not, not a big deal. The false teachers were the same way on the island of Crete. They just, they just didn't get bugged anymore. This was their condition. Their mind was gone. Their conscience was gone. They were defiled. They were unbelieving. And so it should be obvious that the church can't tolerate the presence of such people. No good influence is going to come for them, come from them for the church. Let's finish this section off. Look at verse 16 now, the last verse in this chapter. He says, They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. And it's really, this is the final straw here. I mean, they claim to know God. They claim to be believers. But they were false. They were unbelievers. One more verse here. Back to 2 Timothy chapter 3. I mean, trust me, if I could say it better than Scripture myself, I would, but I can't. These verses, they just speak truth. You, you need to hear, at least hear them. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verses 1 through 5. He says, Realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Get this, verse 5. Holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. That's where there, verse 5, holding to a form of godliness, so they have denied its power. One of my former college students, he got saved through this verse. He's reading scripture one day, and God just convicted him. As he read this verse, this was him. He held on to a form of godliness. He, he called himself a Christian. He pretended to be a Christian, but he wasn't, and he knew it, and God knew it, and God convicted him here. This is what these false teachers were characterized by. They held on to this image or facade of Christianity. They, they looked like Christians on the outside. But they were dead on the inside. They claimed to follow Christ, but how did you know the difference? By their deeds, they denied him. It's the ultimate condemnation. Now I have to pause here. And I have to ask you a question. Do you share this condition? 
False teachers aren't the only false believers in the church. There are a lot. Just listen. Don't turn to Matthew 7. Just listen along. John read some of these verses. Let's finish Matthew 7. Every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown to the fire, so then you will know them by their fruits. Now verse 21. Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who what? He who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, not a few, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name cast out many demons, and in your name perform many miracles. Then I will declare to them, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who what? Practice lawlessness. What's the scene? It's, it's judgment day. And there's this, this horde of people. And who are they? They're Christians. But they're going to hell. But how, how could that be? I mean, they're Christians. Right? I mean, they, they claim to follow Christ. They call them Lord. They, he never knew them. What were they characterized by? I mean, anyone can say they have faith in Christ. What, what were they known by? Practicing lawlessness. By their deeds, they denied him. Their faith was a sham. And they had a rude awakening. Is this going to be you? Anybody can claim to follow Christ. Anybody. But is your faith pure? Is your faith true? Have you been made clean by the blood of Christ? This was the ultimate failure of these false teachers. They weren't relying on the blood of Christ to make them clean. They were relying on their own laws and rules and their own effort to make them clean. But it wasn't good enough. Does the testimony of your life confirm or deny the reality of your new birth? Like I said last week, the new birth, it's, it's a radical thing. And if your life isn't radically different after salvation, if your heart and your desires aren't radically different after salvation, chances are you've not been born again. Because this is no small change that takes place in a person. And out of love for God, and as a consequence of the Spirit's transformation in your life, you should now produce righteousness. You know, we're not saved by this righteousness, but those who have true faith, like the, like Jesus said, the good tree, it's just, it's just going to bear good fruit. It's just how it works, which is one follows after another. You're saved by faith, but if you've been genuinely transformed, it's going to express itself. You can't stop it if you try it. It's just going to work. The Spirit's going to work in you to bear good fruit, it's going to be obvious. But when that fruit is absent, it's also obvious. I'll read these two passages from 1 John that I read last week. Just listen. 1 John 1.6 If we say that we have fellowship with him, and yet, what? Walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Or 1 John 2.4 The one who says, I've come to know him. And does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So is this you? You're out there, you're sitting there. I think everyone here probably claims to be a Christian. 
But is your faith genuine? Do your deeds prove you're in the faith or not? You may say, oh, hey, look, I know maybe I'm not perfect, but I love Jesus. That's enough, right? I love Jesus. That's good. I hope you do. Where's the proof of that love? Jesus himself said, John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's out of love for him. It's why we seek to live for him. If you find yourself out there this morning, simply holding to a form of godliness. It's just, just a shell in your life. It's not real. Simply professing to be a Christian, but your life has not been transformed. Examine your faith. There's no shame in, in, in coming to know Christ, even if you've been in the church your whole life. I know some people feel that sometimes. I can't, I can't think like that. I can't really admit my life has been a sham. But there's no greater rejoicing than one who was lost, realizing they were lost, and coming to be found. Turn from your sin. Whatever you're holding on to, turn from it. Turn to Christ. Having a foot in the world and a foot in the church is not going to cut it. Jesus wants you to radically follow him. So are you going to do that? Three critical truths about false teachers. The character of false teachers, the counter for false teachers, and the condition for false teachers. And my hope is now that you're more informed and better equipped now to to both identify and deal with false teachers when they come. And they will come. Their teaching already pervades the church, so you need to beware and you need to be prepared. And that's why God has given the church Titus 1, 10 through 16. So that the church and the leaders might know the truth, they might spot the wolves, and they might ward them off when they come. So let's be praying together that God would protect us from false influences and that he would keep us in his truth. So let's, let's pray now. Precious Father, we do indeed pray for your hand of protection. You promised, we know this from the beginning, that tares will rise up alongside the wheat and that wolves will mingle with the sheep and that forces of darkness will disguise themselves as angels of light. We know this. We, were, we should be expecting false teaching to infiltrate our ranks. Lord, we pray then for your special protection. Guide us. Keep us in your truth. Help us to cling to the truth as a means of identifying error. May we be so focused and about your book and your truth in love with you and your word that false teaching cannot penetrate because we are solid and sound in you. So give us greater eyes to see you, to know you, and to just be devoted to your truth. Protect this church from any falsehood and keep us in your will. In your name we pray. Amen.